All right, how are we doing this morning? Well, at least a few of you. I, I was, I, you know, we might have a little problem today. I, I missed last week. Uh, John did a fantastic job last week. Amen? You were here. <clears throat> but here's the problem. I, I had the honor and privilege to preach at um, Faith Community Bible Church. Uh, it's a church that we help plant, that we've supported. It's an African-American church up in North County. And uh, I, I might have gotten used to, to the talking back sort of stuff that, that went on there. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, they have a way of saying amen. Like, you know, in here, every once in a while, one of you gets bold enough to go, amen. And, and that's kind of cool. I feel good about that. But that, that's about it. But, you know, I'm preaching last week, and, you know, there's a way of saying amen. It's, it's more like, amen, you know. And that means, man, I agree with this, right? And, and so I few of those, and then you hear, you hear preach. And, and, and I, quite a few of those as it was going on. Every once in a while, somebody would stand up and go, like, preach. And, and that meant, hey, we need to hear this, so, so, so make sure you make it clear, all right? And then, you know, there, there's this moment where it's, come on, preacher, come on, come on. That means don't leave this point, just keep going, come back, let's make sure we double down on this. And then, you know, and, and not only do you, like, when it's come on, it's like, all right, add some emotion, let's get going. Because, you know, one of the funny things last week, we were, they, they did a breakfast beforehand, and Michael Bird, the pastor of the church, in his prayer at the breakfast beforehand, his prayer was, Lord, let us enjoy the service, and I pray that we don't fall asleep. <laughs> and so I, I was wondering, does he pray that every week, or was he praying that because the white guy was preaching this week? I wasn't sure. But I knew I was doing okay when the come on got, got mixed in with, and, uh, you know, people, you know, they, they were getting excited, come on, preach, bring it. Uh, and then next thing I know, Bird, Mike, Michael Bird's right down in front. He is standing with a hanky in his hand doing this. I was like, all right, we're doing okay today. So if y'all feel like, like standing up with a hanky or preach or come on, that, that, that's really okay if you want to. I, I know like some of you are like, I don't, I don't think so, Mike. That, not going to happen here. Uh, anyway, it was, it was good to be with them. And uh, what a joy to be in a place where your faithful giving, your faithful partnership as a church is leading to a gospel presence in that area of the city. We had some great conversations with people whose lives are being changed by the power of the gospel in North City, and, and, or North County, and uh, we get to be a part of that. I love our partnership. So uh, today we're talking about Jesus the prophet. Um, uh, there, there's a famous French philosopher, you've probably Heard of him, he's one of, you know, those of you are like, philosophy, oh no, here we go. Uh, this is why we don't aim in. You start talking philosophy, we go to sleep. Uh, a famous French philosopher, Rene Descartes, what, what's his famous phrase? Does anybody know? I think therefore I am. Nobody knows his, his little brother, Corky Descartes, uh, who had his own phrase, which was, I think, therefore I get a headache. Like, that didn't stick. Um, but I think that, that was supposed to be funny, by the way. Come on, it's, it's okay to laugh, too. Uh, uh, Rene Descartes. Rene Descartes, Rene Descartes uh, had this phrase, I think, therefore I am. And, and that, that is stuck in our culture. What we don't realize is that was actually the sentiment of a series of philosophers that showed up in this period that we call the Enlightenment that actually turned the lights out. Because what happened was in philosophy, the thinkers, okay? And, and what you need to know is the thinkers of the Enlightenment are the pop culture, the educational philosophy of our day. They show up in every movie, all that. 
what happened was a shift in what philosophy, what thinkers were thinking about. Really before this, most thinkers thought about, like, we're here, God and the world are outside of us, and we have to figure out how to find meaning. Like, the world has to make sense to us, and we're trying to figure out God, and we're, just, we're discovering and working through this. But what, what Rene Descartes was basically saying is, I don't know that anything's true. I can't find, like, I can't put my foot down and determine that anything is true. And so instead of looking outside of himself to find truth, he looked within, he said, this is what I do know. I am thinking, therefore I must exist. And that, for him, became the central truth. And it sounds kind of weird, but what happened is that it, it was part of a group of people who said the journey to know anything is no longer looking for something out there. I am now just going to turn and search within myself. What, what's, the way this shows up in our culture today is just be whoever you want to be. Look within for your strength and your power. Look within, find your own path, discover your own destiny. And, and, and that kind of worldview, was, our worldview that is the water we swim in now, was shaped by I think, therefore I am. But see, they, they were opening what was going on at this moment historically and philosophically is that the thinkers were beginning to say, we don't know that we can trust science. We don't know that we can trust religion. Religion has, quote, unquote, done all kinds of crazy bad things. How do we make sense of the world? And they stopped believing in any sacred texts. So they would look at the Bible and go, it's just a human book about God, but there's all kinds of human books about God. And they began to, to, to take an approach to understanding the world and truth that was a path of discovery. Okay? See, there's, there's kind of two ways we can go about this idea of making sense of the world, knowing ourselves, understanding if there is a God, what that God is like. There, there are kind of two paths. And the first path is the path of discovery. That's kind of what they, they were pushing and has become just the, the way, like, you are a person in here and you have probably, without realizing it, you have more faith in your path of discovery than you do the second path. I'll come back to that in a minute. But the path of discovery says, here I am, I'm a human. What I have to do is I have to take everything into myself and then I'm going to examine it from within myself and I'm going to find truth by looking within and, and interacting with the world around me and God and everything else. But I'm on my journey and truth is whatever I make it out to be. It's a world of discovery. But see, when you open the Bible and you start wrestling with the God who is, there's a different path. Now, part of the reason that people look to discovery is because there is something majestically mysterious about the pursuit of God. Like, wouldn't it be cool if we just, like, were in our bedroom in the morning, we woke up, and the first thing that happened was, you know, God sent us a text message or, like, from the room, just, yo, Mike, what's up? I'm here today. Let's talk. You know, like if I got a memo, like if there was a way that God could interact, if, if I was outside looking at the trees and the, the sky and the universe and seeing the hawks and the eagles and the birds flying, all that sort of thing, it, 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 wouldn't it be cool if as I was doing that, the God who is would, would, would communicate in a way that was like speaking through those things, but it was clear. Because one of the problems we've had throughout history is that people look to the things that God has made and rather than finding the true and living God, which is evident there, they begin to worship the things and make them gods. 
there, there is something that is a little bit different. And, and so if I don't accept a sacred text, and if I don't believe that God really speaks, I'm left here just on my own journey. Discovery is the only option. But what we find in the Bible is the very clear understanding, the very clear truth that the God who is, while being mysterious and magnificent and holy and other, has come near to us and he speaks. He has not left us guessing. In other words, what the Bible keeps affirming is that we don't live in a world of discovery. We live in a world of revelation. That God has spoken. And our journey is not to look within to find truth. It is to understand that the God who is, who, like, he is here right now among us, yet the way he shows up and speaks to us is not through, like, an audible voice or through you know, other things. There are ways that he speaks, but he is not just distance. He has come and he has spoken and he has made himself known. And, and we're doing this series called Jesus Is, the, the central, one of the central understandings of our Christian faith is that the clearest way God speaks, listen, we believe the Bible affirms that God speaks in a lot of ways, but the clearest way that God has ever spoken, his final word, not final meaning last, final meaning ultimate word, was the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who made the God, like we don't have to wonder who God is because Jesus, one of the things he kept saying over and over is, he kept saying to everybody, you want to know who the true and living God is? Look at me, Right? And so, so he shows up in the world, and what we see is that, that he is part of a great story where God is telling his story. And over the last few weeks, this is kind of like, if you want to call it a sub-series within a series, we have been looking at these three key roles, these offices that Jesus holds of, of priest last week, king two weeks ago and today, prophet, that that. What God did in the Old Testament with these people, he had this special relationship. This, it's called a covenant with Israel, this nation who were descendants of this one guy named Abraham. And God had saved them from slavery. He had formed an intimate, beautiful father-son type relationship or husband-wife type Those are the two like, really beautiful images in Scripture of the relationship that Israel had with God. And, and what, what he's showing us by giving those two pictures is that this, this relationship between God and Israel was covenantal, which means it was relational. God had come near. He did not leave them guessing. He had acted on their behalf and saved them, and then he brought them to himself, and he gave them his word, and he gave them these guys called prophets who would pass on the very things that he said. And in that covenant relationship, God then raises up these three types of leaders, gives clarity in the scriptures about how they, who, what they're supposed to do, but more importantly, how they represent him and something that they ultimately picture. So you have the kings who show up and they rule for God, except their one job. If you were here a couple, two weeks ago, I told you that the king had one job and the king's one job was to do what? If you were here, help me out. Anybody remember? Lead them to ultimately to Christ, but ultimately in the Old Testament, they were to stand up and say, I'm the king. And my one job is to remind you that I'm not the king. We had a coronation yesterday. And man, I heard little bits and pieces, not of what Charles said, but of what the, the uh, bishop there of Canterbury proclaimed. And he preached Christ 
as the true king. It was beautiful. This was the central role of the kings, to make much of God, to say Yahweh is our king. I'm not the king. Most of the kings utterly failed. Most of the kings thumped their chest and said, I'm the king, you will serve me, rather than pointing them to God as the true king and being a servant to the people. Then there were priests. They were from the tribe of Levi. And, and if you missed it, you got to go back and watch the live stream or listen to the sermon from last week as John explained in detail the beauty of the mediator, the go-between, who brought sacrifices to God on behalf of the people uh, to atone for their sin, who went to the people on behalf of God to study and interpret and read the Torah, the, the Bible to them, and, and to help them understand what God had already said. And this week we're looking at the idea of the fact that God sent prophets, and the prophets were God's spokesmen. They kept reminding the people that God speaks, that God is with us, he is among us, and he has made himself known by speaking, that the God who is is not silent. The God who is is not just a mysterious, mystical being, and we don't know anything about him. The God who is both speaks and acts. They raised this central question, how do we know anything about anyone? And think about this, just... You know, uh, you, you, you meet somebody one day and you get to know them a little bit. And the way you get to know anybody is by hearing what they say and watching what they do. Their, their speech and their acts. So you listen to the, the type of language they use, the way they talk. Are they, are they you know, um, honoring the people? Or are they degrading the people? Are they kind and gentle with their words? Like we begin to understand a person's character by the things that they say. And then in the midst of the things that they say, we also see a person's character by the actions that they take. And sometimes you will meet somebody who what they say and the way they act are just completely different. But that's how we know anything about anybody. Now here's what the Old Testament is. The Old Testament is God's speech and acts. It's him both in the context of this relationship. It is him speaking and what he is doing, his actions, his, his activity. And we see the beauty of the character of God. God is making himself known by speaking and then acting in a way that is consistent with the character he has revealed, his holiness, his justice, his love, his compassion, and his faithfulness, his kindness, like all these things. We see this showing up in the Old Testament as the God who is speaks and acts. And the prophet's job was to, to keep looking at people at any moment in their story and say, thus saith the Lord. Here's what God says. And then we get it written down. So we have God's very word in books of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is the prophets who bring them to us. That we are not left wondering. We're not in a world of discovery. We are in a world of revelation. God has made himself known. And our job is not to just be on a journey to discover our own truth. Our job, our goal in life is to know the true and living God. If you were here this morning... That is what God has for you. If you're watching on the live stream, what God has for you is to know him, to know God. He has made himself known because he speaks. And the prophets, their job was to proclaim this. And so what happens in the story is that God raises up these people called prophets and he sends them as an act of love. So check this out. I'm going to read our two texts together this morning. Grab, the, grab a Bible into your row. Uh, if you don't have one in some of the baskets, we have uh, paper copies. You can find an app, however you want to look at it. Find, first of all, we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 18. And then we're going to look, flip over to John chapter 4. I'm going to read a lot of Bible right now. I'm going to connect the dots between these two passages and how one is telling us that the prophet would come because Jesus is not just a prophet. There's something promised here that points to a future prophet, just like the priest pointed to a future priest 
a greater high priest than the kings pointed to a king who would usher in the kingdom of God. Now the prophets are pointing to one prophet who would eventually come. And then we're going to show how the story with Jesus and this woman identifies and shows that he is truly that prophet. So uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18, um, we'll begin with verse 15. And Moses is speaking on behalf of God. He is, Moses is a prophet. He is speaking on behalf of God to the people of Israel. This, this people who are in covenant, who have a relationship with the God of the Bible, and he is telling them about God's love by raising prophets. So here we go. The Lord your God will raise for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now, here's where this text starts. Moses is going to explain that he is going to raise a lot of prophets But before he gets to the fact that God will raise a lot of prophets, and they need to be careful that the prophet is a true prophet and not a false prophet, he starts by saying, eventually there will be a prophet that is like me that will come. That is why I get the language of the prophet. By the time we get to the New Testament, they are not looking just for a prophet. They are wondering if Jesus is the prophet, the prophet that Moses, right here in this verse, had promised. See, Moses was a little different. Moses, the other prophets just hear the word of the Lord, but Moses met God face to face. Moses was present. God literally gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. He etched, the, the story tells us that he etched them himself. Moses did not write on a tablet for God. God gave Moses the Ten Commandments directly. And now Moses is both the human deliverer for Israel as they escape from slavery and the prophet who has met God face to face and brings the very word of God. And here's what Moses says to the people. On the word of the Lord, God will raise another prophet like me. And when he gets here, y'all better listen to him. Because everything he says is all that really matters. So, so let's keep going. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear the, again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire anymore lest I die. Now, he then references this story where God comes near his people and they get so terrified at the presence of God that they run because they're afraid the presence of God will consume them and they will die because of their sinfulness. That's actually the proper response. And now the prophets from here until Jesus are going to bring God's presence by bringing his word to them in a way that is challenging, but their sinfulness will not consume them every time God shows up. Verse 18, uh, 17. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that that same prophet shall die. And if you shall say in your heart, how will we know that the word of the Lord has not spoken uh, No, the word of the Lord has not spoken. Verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of them. Now, here's what God does. He says, okay, there's eventually, Moses is telling him, there's going to be the prophet. But along the way, there will be a lot of prophets and they will come. And the most common phrase out of the mouth of the prophet was... Thus saith the Lord. We're good King James people this morning, right? Thus saith the Lord, right? Thus saith the Lord. This is what God says. 
Or the other phrase that we hear them say all over and over is, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Isaiah saying, both of them are declaring a central truth that when the prophet speaks, he is speaking God's very word. Now that's a crazy claim. Like if somebody shows up to you and says, I'm a prophet of God, I'm going to speak the word of the Lord. What I say is from God. We better pause and make sure that we are not ignoring that person if they are a true prophet, but we better make sure that we are not following that person if he is a false prophet. And this was the problem that they had to face because if it is the very word of the Lord coming from the mouth of the prophets, they better be sure. And so God says, here's the deal. When a prophet shows up among you and if he in any way points to any God and any, any idea of God that is not from the Torah, from the Bible, and he points to any God that is not the true and living God, that guy's a false prophet. This becomes a problem all throughout Israel's history. They end up with prophets of Baal, prophets of the Canaanite gods. They have all these prophets who come in and they're trying to speak to the people saying, oh, the, God's not going to get you. God's not going to judge you. He, he, he's cool with the way you're living your lives. No big deal. And, and, and then God sends the true prophet and there's just all kinds of stories where the true prophet comes with the true word of the Lord and the king and the people don't want to hear it. But their rejection of that word becomes part of the problem. They gather prophets who will tell them what they want to hear. They, they end up with prophets who are nothing more than an echo chamber. This is a problem. The only people we're listening to are just repeating back to me what I want to hear. You're never really hearing the true word of the Lord. And so he says, first of all, they better never point to a different God, a different spirituality, a different path. They better be pointing to, to Yahweh, the God of the covenant. But he says the second thing that has to happen is that these guys will start making predictions. So their preaching included both preaching, telling people what God was saying, and predictions about things that would happen in the future. And, and here's what God says. God says if I send them, they're going to have a 100% track record. Like, you look at a baseball player who hits over 300, three out of 10, you're like, man, he's a good hitter. But a prophet who goes three for 10 should be stoned to death, is what he says. Because he's coming telling you my word. If they ever miss, they 99.987% means he's not from me. Because if he's from me, he will never speak anything prophetically that I didn't say first. And that's how God says, I'm going to prove that this guy is from me. And so we get to the Old Testament. There are all these books in the Bible that are called to be from the prophets. You need to understand. If you pick up a Bible in the Old Testament, you're reading it. Nobody gets a book without a record of being a prophet. You know, you don't end up with some dude who just goes away for a week in retreat, writes a book and says, here's a prophetic book, and they put it in the Bible. If there is a book in the Bible from the prophet, he has a life record of speaking truthfully about the true God of Israel, and as he speaks truthfully, making predictions that come true, and God proves that he is from God with the words that he says. Now, they're sinful people, but they do walk with God in a way that is just beautiful in the midst of a culture that is denying the God of the Bible, uh, even though they are his people. And that's kind of what happens. And these prophets proclaim the very word of God. In other words, God is speaking to his people. All right? Next text, John chapter 4. Let's look there. And then we'll connect the dots between the role of the prophet in the Old Testament and what's going on in Jesus' ministry here in John chapter 4. John chapter 4, we'll pick it up with verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Still hear pages turning, so I'm going to pause. 
I can't hear screens flipping. It doesn't work. All right. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, uh, what we have is Jesus, and if you read the whole story from the very first verse, you have Jesus intentionally going to this place and showing up at the well at this time so that he could connect with this woman. But, but from a Jewish standpoint, the woman has three strikes against her. Jewish men should not, like a Jewish guy should not be talking to this woman. Strike one, she is a woman. You don't have conversations with women, intimate conversations with women who aren't your wife like this. Strike two, she is a Samaritan, the most despised racial group among the Jews. We don't talk to those people. We don't have anything to do with them. We don't like those people. And number three, we're going to find out that her lifestyle is far from what we would describe as a type of lifestyle, a God-fearing, good religious woman should have in Israel. But, but the beauty is that Jesus comes to her. Now here's where the connection is. As you read the Old Testament for so many of the prophets like Elijah and Elisha, they end up in these beautiful moments where they have conversations and ministry with outsiders who are not Jewish. Women like Elijah ends up in the home of a, a, a Syrian woman who has a son, and they are starving and poor, and Elijah ministers to her. We end up with Elisha ministering to a, uh, a, a ruler of the army of a foreign country and healing him from leprosy. We end up with these prophets who are speaking to Israel, but they end up with these relationships with people who are outsiders from Israel, pointing to the fact that God's purpose of redemption is for all people. That's part of what happens in the prophetic story. And here's Jesus, and he's He's being like Elijah. He's being like Elisha. He goes out of his way to go to a place where he meets a woman that no right-thinking Jew would ever have anything to do with, and he has a prophetic moment with her. All right, here we go. Verse 10. Uh, verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the free gift of God, who it is that is saying to you, As I take a drink, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he, that made me thirsty just reading it. Uh, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you said was true. Man, that had to send chills down this woman's spine. Now, part of just understand what's going on in the story. I'm not going to try to preach everything. Man, there's so much beautiful things in this story. I can't get to everything, but I'm trying to connect this, this promise to what goes on here because something is happening in the text that shows us that Jesus is the prophet. But here's what happens. As he comes and he starts talking to this woman, but he meets her at noon. 
If you're a woman in ancient cultures or any culture, you come to the well. Like almost every culture in the world, you can say it shouldn't be this way, but it is this way. Almost every culture in the world where water is hard to find, it is, it is the women's job to come. As the men go to the fields, the women come get water for the day. And they come when it's cool early in the morning. You don't come at noon. We find out about the, the, the moral character and the struggles. And, man, she, this woman has been used, abused. She has failed, and she is now a, an outsider. The easiest way to not be judged by other people is to show up when nobody else is there. She didn't want to be you know, around the water cooler gossip around the well, be the woman that everybody was snickering at and despising because of who she was. And so the easiest way is to come at noon when nobody else is there. She's kind of shocked to see this Jewish guy sitting there and more shocked when the guy says, hey, I'm thirsty, will you help me get a drink of water? She's blown away by this. <laughs> and she goes, listen, if you knew who I was and you knew anything about me, you wouldn't be talking to me. And then Jesus gets to the point where he looks at her and says, all right, you want living water? I have this water, you'll never be thirsty again. Let's go get your husband. And she's like, I don't have a husband. And then Jesus like, looks at her and goes, you're right. You've ended up with five husbands, which may mean that she divorced him, but more than likely that means five different men looked and said, I, I just can't deal with you anymore. I don't like you. And she's been discarded and then used and then as a way to find meaning and hope in life, gave herself to another man who then didn't do that. Now she's living with a man outside of marriage who isn't her husband. She is an outcast. She is broken. She is destroyed emotionally. She is used and abused. This is a woman who, like, you've got to see who this woman is and enter into her pain, but also her failure. <laughs> Jesus looks at her not knowing her and says, you've had five husbands. You're hooked up with a guy now. And she's like, I think you might be a prophet. You think? She is bright. All right. Uh, verse 19. The woman said, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and it's now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, what is going on and what is the connection between these two passages? Well, like I said, God raised up prophets, but from the beginning, he tells Moses, there's going to be one prophet who eventually comes who's going to be the prophet. And the prophets come saying, thus saith the Lord, they preach. And meanwhile, the nation just moves further and further and further away from the beautiful relationship, the fatherly relationship that God has made with his children. And he keeps, God keeps sending prophets, and it gets so bad that God is going to have to discipline and judge his kids. His character, the most, like, you need to understand, the most beautiful and precious and important thing in the universe is the holy character of God. If God gives away one drop of his holiness, if he denies his character on any level, there is no hope. Our good is consumed, is fulfilled in the good, glorious beauty of the God who made us. 
And, and so this story in the Old Testament, we end up with Israel straying, and the prophets end up looking like, you know, we feel like they're these guys with bushy eyebrows who got this finger, it's like this long, who are just pointing and always yelling at people. Meanwhile, if you actually read them, they're all going, I don't, I don't like this message. I want, to, I want to be like the other prophets who just show up and go, happy, happy, joy, joy, everything's going to be wonderful. And they show up with the word of the Lord going, this ain't going good, and it's going to end well. Discipline's coming. But Israel become like that crazy kid in Walmart. Have you, have you, have you been in Walmart where, you know, mom's walking around, she's got three kids who are pulling stuff off the shelves, and they're running, they're terrorizing Walmart, and somebody's like, you don't look at the kids and go, those are awful kids. What do you do? You look at mom and go, what the heck's wrong with you, right? I, I guess you guys have never been in Walmart when that was happening. It's happened to me a lot. And then we had our own, and we were like, we're not taking our kids to Walmart anymore. Not happening. Because I know nobody was looking to go, those poor parents, they're going, what's wrong with those people? Those kids are crazy. And, and so the easiest way to solve that is, I shop, mom stays home. Uh, but anyway, you, you, we, we don't look at the kids and go, those kids, we look at the kids and go, what's wrong with the parent? That's what's going on in the Old Testament. The character of God was at stake in the way he dealt with his people who had gotten into all kinds of just, like if you really study it, it's terrible. They were in the sex slave trade. They were involved in genocide. It was terrible in the name of these other gods. They were sacrificing their children, like literally taking babies born and throwing them on hot coals, offering them as a sacrifice to these other gods. And God's stomach has just turned and people, the nations are looking at him going, they're worse than we are. And the prophets come with the word of the Lord. But what happens is we, we see them in a certain way. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, before God sends Babylon, this horrible, hard moment of discipline in the Bible, listen to what the Lord says about the prophets in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 15 and 16. He says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers. These messengers are the prophets. Because he had anger, disgust. What did he have? Compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his process until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. See, what happens is, is when we hear about the prophets, we get images in our mind of both the prophets and the God who sends them. And most of the time, the image looks something like this. Do we have that image? Okay. Uh, so... The image is this guy who's hovering over these people, pointing right in the face of these people, going, Aah! you horrible people. Like, that's what we see. And we see this guy who's just angry. He's got this eye twitch. who's just, just like, like the umpire who's wanting to throw everybody out and just yell at people. Like, this is the God of the Old Testament. And that's not really the way it is. And what happens is this word compassion, you need to understand that what's going on here is not this angry, prophetic, crazy person who is declaring to the people what we end up having here is this God who is daddy who keeps inviting his kids up on his lap again. I've had this conversation with all my children at some point in time. There might be times where I have to discipline with you. But I want you to know that the best and safest place for you is here on my lap. Close. Your prosperity, your blessing is tied up 
and interacting and being close to a dad and mom who love you deeply. This is who the prophets are. They're the voice of a God who keeps beckoning to his children who are running away, saying, it's not going to end well. This is not why I made you. I love you. Come back, but if you don't, I have to discipline you. Or, or you, you will both wreck a picture of my character and it will destroy you as a person, as people. The prophets are God's compassion, this voice. And so the prophets show up and they, they are speaking, but every prophet then starts pointing and the subject of their prophecy becomes this one who would eventually come, this one who would show up and this one who, who would be the true priest, the high priest, the one who would be the true king of the kingdom of God. This is the, like, as, as they begin to say, our hope is not ourselves, our hope is one who is coming. And they, every prophet begins to point forward to this one, this one, and Jesus becomes the object of their prophecy. And what happens in John chapter four, Jesus has this conversation, which I love the fact that the longest recorded conversation that Jesus, the Son of God, the, the, the God who came in flesh, the longest conversation that Jesus has in the Scriptures with any one person is a rejected, broken, sexually broken woman who is despised by everybody, and it's the longest recorded conversation that Jesus has with any single person in the Scriptures. But he, is, he has come to her as the prophet, not just a prophet, the prophet. See, see, the, as you read the Old Testament, the prophet's message would be, thus saith the Lord. But Jesus keeps standing up in front of people when he shows up in the world, and he says, you have heard it said, and then he would quote scripture, and then he would say, but I say to you. He's no longer saying, thus saith the Lord. He's saying, I say to you. The prophets would show up and say, listen, uh, one day, this one is coming, but Jesus shows up in the world and he stands up like he's, when he's in his own, own hometown, he reads Isaiah chapter 61 and for generations, people would read this verse and go, someday, 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 someday. And Jesus stands up in front of his hometown and says, today, it's been fulfilled. No longer someday, I'm here. The prophets would stand up in the Old Testament and they would say the Messiah will come. And this woman, hearing that voice of the Messiah, right, said, we've been told the Messiah will come someday. He, we've been looking for this Messiah. Jesus doesn't go, and one day he'll show up. Jesus stands up and says, you are meeting him. The hope of the Messianic promise is here. The, the previous prophets kept saying, we declare the goodness of God to you. And Jesus' message over and over is if you want to know the goodness of God, look to me. See, see as the prophet, the true revelation of God, Jesus did not come just to give us the word of the Lord. He is the word made flesh. He did not come just to show us how to live. He is the life. He did not come just to show us the way to God. He declared himself to be the way. He did not come to reveal truth. He is the truth. He did not come to point us to God. He is God who came to us. 
He is the prophet because God peeled back the layer that like, it would be amazing and terrifying if God in a moment chose to peer back the layer between the heavenlies, the unseen spiritual world and earth this morning. We think if God showed up, we'd be like partying, be like, whoop, whoop. We would fall on our faces just like the people at Horeb did. Yet God peeled back this layer by stepping into humanity. And Jesus, as the prophet, is both the object and the subject of his own prophecy. Let me explain what I mean. He is the object, meaning he is the prophet. He's the one who's speaking. He is the one who is making God known. But the other prophets, as the object, the subject was somebody else. He is also the subject where he is saying, as the prophet, look to me. Now here's the big point for the whole sermon. If you want to know God, you look to Jesus. He is our God. He has come to make the invisible spiritual God, the God who is spirit, known. And you can know God. Not through discovery, not through, like, we do discover things by reading, but, but listen, it is through revelation, God coming and speaking and making himself known to us. And he has done this in his word and in the person of Jesus. And what happens in the story here is that we see Jesus as the prophet interacting with this woman who is broken, who is far from God. He is acting like the prophets of the Old Testament, coming to an outsider and opening the way of salvation to her. And what we see is, is, is that there are four things that Jesus makes known to her that he also makes known to us. And here they are, real quick. Number one, the, the first thing Jesus in his prophetic role makes known to her, makes known to us, is the glory of God. He shows her the true and living God. She was part of a religious system that had embraced some of the ideas of God. At the same time, they had embraced some other ideas from other religions and kind of mixed it in. They had a different place of worship, a different temple in a different area. And now she is with the true living God in the flesh, and he makes God known to her. I, I had a conversation with, with my twins this week, uh, kind of about this. Like, the question was, how do we know what God is saying to us? How do we know what the word of the Lord is? How do, how do we find God's call in our life? And what I wanted to say is, well, send God a text and he'll let you know, right? That would be awesome, right? Leave a voicemail. He'll get back with you. The truth of the matter is, it's, it's beautiful and rich and complex that if we go seeking the word of the Lord, we will hear this. But the way we know what God is saying to us now is making sure that we are in touch with what God has already said. And, and so what happens in, in the story is that we are told over and over again, if we want to know who God is, what he's like, the sort of things he will say, his character, his value, look to God. Look to Jesus. John 14, 9, Jesus said, whoever's seen me has seen the Father. And so, so we tend to perceive God as angry and always is upset with us. And then we look to Jesus and, and what we see is a, 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 a man who went out of his way to meet this woman in her need. We see the beautiful compassion of Jesus as he heals and he loves and he cares for. And we see the gracious glory of God who goes to the cross for sinners like you and me. Is God angry at our sin? Yes. 
Do we deserve justice for our sin? Absolutely. God is a God of justice. But Jesus shows us that that justice of God comes with a cool, refreshing drink of grace for those who will turn to Christ, who will find in him the true and living God and will trust in him. He is God among us. He has made God known. And he meets the woman with compassion. He meets the woman with grace, with mercy, with kindness. If you're here today and your first opinion of God is that he's just ticked at you, I just want to tell you, look to Jesus. There's a remedy for that and a grace and a love. He, he is for you. The God of this universe has made himself known in Jesus and he has made the love of, love of God real. Came to demonstrate. This is how we know what true love is. That God has demonstrated his love in this. That Christ laid down his life for us. He loves you. He's for you. The God of the universe is true and real, and he is pursuing you. He is not going to give up on you. He is for you. And the way we know that is by looking at the person, the work, the character of Jesus as the prophet. He doesn't come to this woman with this angry eye. He exposes her sin. He shows her, but he doesn't come. He's just there present. He pursues her. He loves her. He sits down. He has this glorious conversation with a woman no other Jewish man would ever have a conversation with. You, you feel like, man, I'm beyond the, the reach and grace of God. Don't believe it. You know who God is by looking at Jesus. Second, our true selves. We see our true selves. Um, and we see this just in the way he interacts with her. And so we see that, that she is infinitely valuable. Our culture is, is like trying to explain humanity in a way that just doesn't work. Like you, our culture wants to look at you and go, you are a cosmic accident, but you have intrinsic worth. That like both of those are upside down. If you're a cosmic accident, there is no meaning, there is no worth, there is no, and nobody who tries to tell you, hey, believe in the evolutionary, agnostic, atheistic worldview. If you hear anybody who says, but we can find meaning and value in life, it's pure silliness. And here's Jesus looking at this woman going, you matter to God. You, I'm gonna have the longest conversation with you that I will have that will show up in the Bible because you matter. There is intrinsic worth in our humanity and the God of the universe has come and given his son Jesus to pursue us. Yet, there is infinite brokenness. Infinite brokenness. And the other thing, like our, our current day just wants to look at you and says, you're basically a good person. That philosophy is not working out. It's not. Listen, I'm not, I'm not up here telling you anything about pro or against gun rights. I, there's all kinds of implications. But the, hey, we're basically good, is proving itself to be an awful philosophy because every day I pick up the newspaper and there are more people who are dead for no reason just because somebody grabbed a gun and said, I'm going to kill them. Nine more people. We should be lamenting this. It is awful. But we just have thrown up our hands and went, what do we do? It is a culture who is saying, but you are you are okay. You're a good person. No, we're not. We're broken beyond measure. And Christ meets this woman and reveals her brokenness. She doesn't like it. But if you go on to read the story, she goes and tells everybody else, 
I met this dude who told me everything about the hot mess in my life. He didn't know me. He knew everything. She is now confessing her sins to her community, and she is saying, but he is doing something about it. You are not going to really know yourself. You are, I'm just telling you, you're not going to know yourself until you look to the Gospels and the Scripture and understand how the Bible pictures you. Infinitely valuable and infinitely broken. We need a Savior. And until you understand that, as long as you think I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps, I can make my life count, I should pursue my own dreams, I should go for the gusto, I should live for myself, as long as you have that in your mind, you're just going to see Jesus as a coach. We don't need a coach. We need a Savior. Right? And so here we go. Jesus is not there to give her life training. He's not there to give her therapy. He is there to point an infinitely valuable, infinitely broken woman to the source of living water. Glory to God, she met him. That's what we all need, right? Y'all, you're getting me a little excited. I'm like, all right, here we go, here we go. Third thing we, we see is the nature of truth. I'm not gonna get lost here. I could spend another hour here and I know I don't, can't do that. But what Jesus basically does, she asks him a theological question. Without getting into the, all the details about who worships where, he ultimately looks at her and says, the truth about worship is redefined by my existence. Augustine has said, all truth is God's truth. Now, we can get into debates on how science, and, and I'm not saying don't be scientific, don't be mathematical, don't pursue the, the other parts. Don't, like, I, we need great Christian philosophers and great Christian sciences, scientists, but what you need to understand is when the world is rightly understood, it is going to align with the truth of God. All truth is God's truth. Or said another way, uh, this man named, Her, uh, this uh, Reformed theologian uh, named Herman Bavenick said this, he, Jesus, is the truth in its absolute fullness. He, therefore, is the primary and original truth, the source of all truth, the truth in all truth. He is the ground of the truth, of true being, of all things, of their knowability and conceivability, the ideal and archetype of all truth, all ethical being, of all the rules and laws, in light of which the nature and manifestation of all things should be judged, and on which they should be modeled. God is the source and origin of the knowledge of truth in all areas of life. What Bavnik is trying to say to us is that if you look at anything in this universe and you don't understand it through the lens of the gospel of the existence of Jesus, the scriptures, and you try to understand anything as true without seeing Christ as the creator and redeemer, you're not going to understand it. Your conclusions are going to be wrong and, and there's no way around it. Either this is a world of revelation or it's a world of discovery. Either all of creation is the realm of God making himself known or it's not. There's no middle ground here. And we as believers need to enter all these realms, but we need to know that wherever you work, wherever you go, whatever you do, all truth is God's truth, and Christ is the center of that truth. Everything about our reality is defined by Jesus, who he is and what he did, period. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. Okay? Last thing he reveals is the way of salvation. And it's beautiful, he just says says, give me a drink. And he's thirsty. And every time I think about it, I need to get another drink because I'm thirsty too. I have to keep coming back to it. Good water. 
Jesus says, I got a drink for you. When you drink it, you'll, you'll never be thirsty again. What will happen is when you drink it, it will settle in your soul and your heart will become a fountain, a river that will well up into eternal life. That you're not gonna need an external well to keep feeding. You're gonna have something on the inside of you that will make you where you're not ever thirsty again. If you've met Christ, if you know the God we're talking about, you, you get it. He is that fountain. Welling up in eternal life. If you're here today and you don't know him, he is the way of salvation. He is the one who makes God known. There is a God in heaven who has made heaven and earth, one true and living God, and he is made known through his son Jesus. He is our God. And so what happens is here we are. Christ has these three roles, and what we're said, said is here's the Old Testament king. He ruled for God, but Jesus is the true and better king who came not just to rule for God, but he is he brought God's kingdom, and in everything he did, we see what it looks like for God to truly rule and reign in the universe and in our lives. He is the high priest, like John said, who is both offer of the sacrifice and the sacrifice himself. And what we do is we see the, the sacrifice and we receive the cross of Christ as our hope. We look to the king and we bow our knee and trust in him as the one who, 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 has, who rules our lives and then he comes to us as prophet, which means that God, Christ has made God known, and we stand up like, like Thomas. Remember doubting Thomas? Doubting Thomas on the weekend after Jesus resurrected wasn't there. He, I don't know if he was hanging out, went fishing for the weekend. He just missed the first time Jesus showed up. And Thomas says, I, you guys are nuts. People don't come back from life. From the, from the dead. It just doesn't happen. I won't believe it unless I see his hands and his feet. And Jesus, as the prophet, the one who reveals God, shows up in the room a week later and Thomas is there. And Jesus says, here's my hands, here's my feet, here's the purpose, here's what God has done. Your redemption is in this. And he falls at his feet and says, my Lord and my God. See, Jesus come to make God known. We're not left guessing. So what do you do with this? Well, if you don't know him, run to him today. Run to him, all right? We're going to sing here. The band's going to come up here. We're going to sing a couple songs. We're going to have some people over here in the corner who are ready. If you don't know Jesus today or you have questions about what I'm talking about, you're like, I, I don't understand this and I'm kind of lost, please don't leave here without a conversation. Let's talk to you about the God who has made himself known. Let's point you to Jesus who is our true and living hope, okay? But if you are here today and you're a follower of Jesus God has come near to you in his compassion and love as a father, and he is constantly saying, hey, the best place for you is right here. And the way we end up in the lap of the father is by knowing Jesus. Spend your life learning what God has revealed. Holding on to him. Trusting him. Believing. Jesus, we thank you that you are the prophet. You have come to us in these clear and glorious and beautiful ways. And, and today, we just we acknowledge that you are God in the flesh. You have made God known. And you are that prophet who perfectly reveals who God is. May we become a people who look to you at all times with the hope that is in this beautiful truth. Today, Lord, if there's anybody in here who doesn't have a relationship with you, will you speak to them? Will you speak to them today 
and reveal yourself. Make yourself known. And show your glory and your grace. In your name I pray. Amen.